Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. It's really good to be with you all this morning to worship and receive from the Lord. Uh, So at our first service, we baptized the Hodges girls. So if you don't know the Hodges, they're a little bit newer to our our church, and I'd encourage you next time you see them to say hi. But uh, Kate, Nora, Annie, and Anna, and uh, Libby were baptized this morning. So the sermon was kind of like talking to them, but through them to all of you, exploring the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. And so for those of you who have been baptized this morning during communion, I'm going to put this right here. When you come forward, you can mark yourself if you'd like to remember your baptism Um, But I'm going to speak to you as followers of Jesus, remembering your baptism. We're going to explore the nature of what it means to follow Jesus through the lens of the disciples' failures we've just heard read this morning. Because in Luke 9, we see this kind of cascading series of failures that the disciples go through, and they have a lot to teach us. So the first thing they have to teach us is simply this, following Jesus is a process. Following Jesus is a process. Between Luke 9, 37 and 56, there are five stories of failure. You know, it's these hand-selected disciples find themselves in just a wildly fine form of failure. They are just all turned around. In verse 27 through 43, Peter, James, and John, they're upon the mountain, kind of gloriously beholding the transfigured Jesus. And the other nine disciples are where? We find that they're down at the bottom of the mountain, trying and failing to perform an exorcism. And Jesus explains it's because of their faith, faithlessness. And the next, Jesus alludes to his impending suffering and death at the hands of evil men. And for some mysterious reason, the disciples can't understand him, and they don't really have the courage to ask for clarity. And the next, this cascading failure reaches new depths. Those, those who have not long ago been told to take up your cross and follow me and consider others better than yourselves and serve others, they are now arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Then they go on to demonstrate this elitist and, and cliquish mentality. There's some, someone else is casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they come, and, and they say, Jesus, stop them. And the, the irony here is palpable because what's just happened? The disciples have just tried and failed and been rebuked for their faithlessness, and now they're complaining about someone else succeeding. <clears throat> and then finally, in verse 51 through 56, Jesus is not well received in Samaria, and the sons of thunder, James and John, offer to call down fire to obliterate an entire village, and Jesus rebukes them. You know, I, So they lack faith to exercise a demon. They they lack discernment of Jesus' words. They pridefully argue about who's the greatest. They show an exclusive and tribalistic mentality, and then they suggest violent destruction to those who resist them. After reading this, I find myself asking the same question many of us perhaps ask around election season. (laughs) Like, the entire country to choose from, and this is the best we've got? You know, like, like them, really? Um, maybe you don't, but some of us do. Um, are they really the best of us? And the answer is no. The disciples are not the best of Israel. That's the point. They are not. They are not, you know, among them are the uneducated and the poor and a tax collector and a traitor and a political extremist. These disciples are not the cream of the crop. They are um, they're not the best of the best. They're not the most holy spiritual people around. They are ordinary, broken men and women like you and I. And Jesus chooses them because like a good doctor... The heart of God is to draw near to the broken and draw near to the sick, not to run from them. 
So when Jesus is like picking his team, maybe some of you have been scarred by middle school with the captain picking you last. When Jesus is picking the team, he doesn't begin with the most athletic kid. He, he finds the kind of the weakest, the shyest kid in the room, and he's like, you. I want you. And some of you relate to that, and some of you don't, because some of you kind of don't relate easily to weakness and failure. It's part of the challenge. You know, you were always picked first. You are smart. You are strong. You, you are accomplished. You're, you're generally ethical. You know, you're successful. And the spiritual danger here is that you kind of might not feel like you need Jesus much, or you've repressed a sense of need. Others of you relate all too easily. You are hard on yourself. Your sin is always before you. You, You're aware of your weakness. And the spiritual danger there is that you just live in shame. And you feel like, I need to be less anxious and less depressed and less addicted and less lazy and less gluttonous and less selfish, less jealous, whatever, before I can follow Jesus and embrace his love. Well, the gospel says that you're both wrong. You are more sinful than you think you are. And you are more loved than you could ever imagine. So we'll pin that thought there and return to it in the last point. But the disciples' failures teach us most basically that following Jesus is a process. You know, as tempting as it can be to be impatient with ourselves, as we recognize how slow our progress is sometimes, just remember it's okay that you're not yet the finished product. As you fumble and fall along the way, you're in the good company of every follower of Jesus ever. So along the way, don't ask, you know, am I 100% more sanctified and holy and more like Jesus than I was yesterday? Maybe better to ask, am I a little more like Jesus than I was a decade ago, a couple decades ago? Discipleship is a process, so be patient with yourself. That said, there is a process. There is a goal, a trajectory, a destination for discipleship. What might we call it? We might call it just a fresh perspective. Notice how following Jesus means that the disciples are offered Jesus' fresh perspective and counsel in the midst of their failure. They're, they're selfish. We've, we've named their failures, and each, much of sin at its root is selfishness, and we see that on the display in the disciples and the way they're seeing the world and processing what's happening around them. Selfishness is cramping the disciples into seeing a world through the lens of, of um, violence, and jealousy, and tribalism, and um, elitism, faithlessness. This is the way of seeing the world that leads to enmity, for example, between ethnicities, or between countries, or political parties, families even, spouses, even within ourselves. And I wish I couldn't relate to the selfishness of the disciples as much as I do. Um, I regularly search myself and reckon with the frailty of my faith. I, sometimes the words of Jesus do leave me really confused, and I don't really care enough to keep engaging. Uh, I am prone to tribalism and elitism. I just, this past year, I was a part of a spiritual direction cohort with a lot of pastors, and many of them were non-denom pastors, and they would say things where I was like, the answer is the sacraments, you know? And I was just like, um, but the point is, is I would find, I would genuinely find these kind of ugly feelings of superiority bubbling up, like, you know, Like somehow being an Anglican makes me in any way superior in God's eyes? Nonsense. And as for calling down fire, swap out the Samaritans for my children. I mean, it's a good thing I have no idea how to do that. (laughs) Um, But it's there. So what is the way forward? I I don't shame myself to death over the fact that I am in process. But I do recognize that I also must, as the disciples did, remain close to Jesus and to hear his words, to hear his corrective counsel, his fresh perspective. 
The, there's a famous photographer named Freeman Patterson. He's widely known for his simple advice. I like the quote. I don't really like his photography. I looked it up, but um, the quote's good. <clears throat> he says, talking to photography students, the key to seeing, the key to seeing in a fresh way is this. He said, self-preoccupation cramps you. Self-preoccupation cramps you into photographing in a certain predetermined way. You might call it a stale, overdone, a tired way. Preoccupation with the self is the greatest barrier to seeing and the hardest one to break. He goes on to offer a solution. He says, but on those frosty mornings, when I grab my camera and my tripod and I head out into the meadow behind my house, I, am quick, I quickly forget about me. He says, I lose myself. I lose myself in the sheer magic of rainbows in the grass. In the multicolored prisms of backlighted crystals, I am lost in a world of glittering lights and dancing colors. Patterson here is capturing what the 19th century Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers famously called the expulsive power of a new affection. Can't you just hear an old preacher saying that? Chalmers argued that a new affection is far better at supplanting an old affection, selfishness, than simply shouting, stop it, at our destructive urges. We need a new affection to pull us out of ourselves. Freeman's advice is to lose yourself in the power of affection for nature, and I think that's great advice. Anyone who has enjoyed the heavenly calm of snowshoeing, um, you know, it's just it pulls you out of yourself. Anyone who's walked through a, a golden aspen forest knows the power of Freeman's words. The invitation of Jesus is to let both his words, and we're going to see in a minute his work, become like the magic rainbows in the grass, a new affection that draws you out of this tired way of seeing the world, this selfish way, and offers you a fresh perspective, a fresh way of seeing. So let's look at one example of how this works. We read in verse 43 that everyone's astonished at Jesus because he's performed this exorcism the disciples couldn't, and they're marveling at him. And instead of using their adoration as a platform for like a new multi-site congregation or a new political movement, you know, or some sort of turning a prophet. Instead, he, he moves in the opposite spirit. He says in verse 44, the Son of Man is going to die. That's the kind of Messiah I am. So he's got an interesting relationship with power, doesn't he? Next thing you know, the disciples, they're arguing about who the best of them are. No doubt Peter, James, and John were proud, proudly asserting to themselves, hey, we saw him up on the mountain. We saw Jesus glowing. Did you? You know? And perhaps Matthew was just counting the cold, hard cash he had left behind in his old career as a tax collector. How much have I given up? How much have you given up? Others were asserting their intelligence, perhaps, or maybe their, you know, their social status or their eloquence, uh, their schooling. Who knows? But I imagine Jesus, I don't know, but I imagine him kind of silently watching them argue, <laughs> and their prideful bickering slowly kind of calms to a halt as they realize that their rabbi has brought a child into the room. It's a confusing gesture because in a society obsessed with status, children had none. They were lowest on the totem pole. And Jesus, pointing to a child, bottom of the totem pole, says, he who is least among you is the one who is great. I mean, how's that for fresh perspective? Imagine if church leaders and politicians and influencers all began their mornings by going out into the meadow and, and basking in the beauty of Christ's invitation to childlike humility dreaming about how they could use their great power to serve and empower others. 
Imagine if this way of seeing the world flowed like a fresh breeze over the church and over our country and over our world. I mean, every step of the way, Jesus offers this fresh perspective. He gives up people's adoration and chooses the cross. He lifts the humble and humbles the proud. He rebukes jealousy and tribalism and violence. Following Jesus means we make a habit of picking up our camera, going into the field, and just marveling at the beauty of his perspective, meditating on it as the psalmist does. How sweet are your words to my taste. They're like honey. Okay, a moment ago I said following Jesus means letting both his words, which I've just talked about, and his work become like the, the magic rainbow in the grass that draws us out of ourselves. Well, I've just covered words, but what about his work? I have saved the best for last, as it were. Following Jesus is a process. Following Jesus brings a fresh perspective. And lastly, remember this. This is so important to remember. Following Jesus means resting in the finished work of Christ. The text we've covered this morning actually is a hinge for the entire Gospel of Luke. So in verse 51, Jesus is leaving behind his Galilean ministry, which is the region he was ministering in, and he's headed towards Jerusalem. The shift happens in verse 51. He says, we read, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Taken up means his ascension, but it also means the events leading up to it. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension. But when he sets his face towards Jerusalem... He is resolutely and absolutely resolving in his heart to walk towards the cross. Why? Because Jesus knows that we, his followers, who are perpetually in process, right? Perpetually in process, wrestling with brokenness, we need not only his words, but we need his atoning work on our behalf. Because Jesus knows we need his atoning work on our behalf. You know, some people grew up with a vision of God that went like this in the gospel. You are a sinner, okay? You owe a massive debt to God. As such, you will be in prison until the debt is paid. And to pay off this angry divine warden, as it were, you must work so hard to obey Jesus' words and become righteous that you prove your worth and earn your salvation. The major problem with this view... <laughs> It's not that it takes sin too seriously. It's that it doesn't take it seriously enough, actually. It doesn't take the gravity of sin and the gravity of the holiness of God seriously enough. What do I mean? Because beginning with Augustine, the church has always said that you and I simply do not have anywhere near the resources to pay the debt. We just don't have it. No matter how hard we strive, no matter how hard we work, it's not in us. And that's humbling. And that's good news, actually. You know? We can no more earn salvation than a goldfish can climb Pike's Peak. We don't have the resources to do it. And God says, I do. And that's the ministry of Christ. That's the work of Christ is to give us his resources. We who are sin, he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so he does the hard work. He does the heavy lifting. In his death, he takes the sin. In his resurrection, he gives us his life, his cloak. And so, you know, it took me a while to get here, but here's basically the one thing I want to say. The 2 a.m. test. Followers of Jesus are at once in process and perfect in him. Followers of Jesus are at once in, profit, in process and perfect in him. Martin Luther famously put it in Latin, simul justus et peccator, at one and the same time righteous and sinner, a righteous sinner. 
In fact, in the final analysis, it's this truth that causes us to long for his words, to love his words. Because yes, his words offer us a fresh perspective, but his work offers us a preoccupation, a new affection, right? When you see what he's done for you, when you see his sacrificial love on your behalf, a fresh love wells up within you as you marvel at the beauty of the cross and the resurrection and the sending of the Spirit. That's the key to following Jesus. It's to fall in love with him. Because I've said many times, what the heart loves, the will chooses, the mind justifies. What your heart loves, your will will choose, and your mind will justify. Our fallen hearts are bent in on themselves. They're held captive and they're cramped with a way of seeing the world that's selfish. We need the expulsive power of a new affection to displace us from the center of our lives. That's what Christ's work offers. The gift of his grace means you're a justified sinner. On the one hand in process, and the other hand righteous before God. This means God's delight in you. It doesn't ebb and flow like the Colorado weather. You know, storming when you fail and shining when you do your quiet time consistently. His work is steadfast. It's done. Jesus proclaimed it, finally finished from the cross. It is finished. I want to call on the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, to close this sermon with a bit of style. Reflecting on these words, it is finished. He says this. It is finished. What a spring of comfort flows from these words to the believer amid their innumerable failures and flaws and imperfections in process, right? What service do you perform, he asks, of which you can say, it is finished? Alas, not one, because your service is imperfect. Your obedience is incomplete. Your love is fluctuating. Turn then your eye of faith out of yourself, off of all of your own doings, and deal more immediately, closely, and obediently with the finished work of Emmanuel. Come away from your fickle love, from your weak faith, from your little fruitfulness, from even your uneven walk, fall you, from all of your shortcomings and imperfections. And then he says, let your eye of faith repose where God's eye of love reposes, on the finished work of Christ. God beholds you only in Christ. It is not upon you he looks, but on his beloved Son and upon you in him. So as we now turn our attention to communion, what I said to the first service, we were turning our attention to baptism. I clarified with the girls, baptism is not something ultimately you do. You don't conjure up the right feelings and the right thoughts to do some sort of religious performance. Yes, you turn your heart to him in faith, away from your sin and to him, but ultimately it's something God does. It's a gift he gives. So as you come forward this morning for communion, I'm, I'm going to put this here. If you'd like to just remember that, that you were baptized, and when you were baptized, Christ gave you this gift and, and, and gave you his righteousness to take the eye of faith off yourself and your own performance and rest it on him. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Father, we do, we do pray you would help us to fall more deeply in love with you. We know that's even a gift, that our hearts are selfish. So I pray that you would help us to marvel at the beauty of what you've done, what you've said. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. 
For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.